What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Friday, February 17th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. According to a Business Insider column that I read, a man named Carl, actually, how Business Insider phrases it is, a Chicago man going by Carl, stopped at his local 7-Eleven to grab his usual cup of coffee and wait for his carpool ride to work. Why was he going by Carl? Let's not dwell on that. Let's dwell on the actually horrible and not at all funny thing that happened next. So he's standing in front of the 7-Eleven and you know 7-Elevens have parking lots and apparently a car in the parking lot just guns it. The guy meant to step on his brake. He stepped on his accelerator, pinning Carl between the car and the 7-Eleven. Carl lost the use of his legs. Absolutely awful. And so, as you could imagine, Carl sued. I don't know how much the driver of the car is worth, but actually that's not who Carl sued. Carl sued the 7-Eleven. Why? I asked myself. The 7-Eleven's just standing there. They didn't gun the gas. Well, according to Insider, there are some interesting stats about 7-Elevens and crashes into storefronts. In fact, it's not just according to 7-Eleven. It's according to the Storefront Safety Council, which I was curious where their headquarters were. If it's an office park, those guys are hypocrites. But in fact, the Storefront Safety Council does not seem to be, as I thought it might be, an industry group. It is a group of people, most of whom were pinned by cars against storefronts or within storefronts when they were smashed into by cars, and they're trying to do whatever they can to raise awareness and collect statistics. And the statistics are pretty shocking. The council estimates that as many as 16,000 people are injured and as many as 26,000 people are killed every year. Let's just look at 7-Elevens. 7's 11? 13,000 stores in the U.S., so that's going to explain some of the sheer volume of statistics I'm about to quote. But in a 15-year period, 2003 to 2017, 6,253 storefront crashes at 7-Eleven. Yes, this averages out to more than one a year. So again, I wasn't exactly answered uh, the question that I had, but why sue 7-Eleven? But... The jury sure seemed to be compelled to fault 7-Eleven. Carl won $91 million in a settlement, the biggest in Illinois history. And here we get to the reason. It turns out that for $800, stores can put a bollard in front of their store between the parking lot and their store. You see these all the time. Just a metal thing so that you crash into that and not the store or the people who go by Carl drinking coffee outside the store. $800. Now, I guess pre-$90 million settlement, it was just not 
cost-effective to put this bollard in. And if people died or lost their legs, I guess 7-Eleven said, well, it's really on the drivers of the car. But this is one reason why we have a tort system and a legal system. 7-Eleven is now on notice. And for $800 or so, which comes out to $10 million times the 13,000 7-Eleven stores in the United States, they'll be putting in bollards, it would seem, just to avoid these massive, massive penalties that the justice system occasionally meets out. Is it fair? Well, I know this. I think that the upshot of all of this will be a little more safety in what I did not know is one of the least safe places in America, one of our retail storefronts dotting the landscape. On the show today, it is an Antoine Tig, and I'm not going to tease that I'm going to tease a major announcement, but don't worry, a lot of corrections will be issued, and I will uh, do a little arguing with people who think that uh, half-fake means pretty much real if AOC said it. But first, Martin Wolf is chief economics commentator at the Financial Times in London. He's been at it a long time. He's seen it all from that perch. He's also lived through a lot. He's had parents who fled the Holocaust. And he's out with a book that makes a diagnosis of what we could do to save democracy. And the thing is economic growth. Not that economic growth is easy, and he knows it's been assailed, but economic growth once again, seems to be the only way out of the doldrums that much of the West finds itself in Martin Wolf up next. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com For a long time, when the fairly robust economic returns of the capitalist system fueled our faith in the political system, things were going well. They weren't perfect. Incomes weren't perfectly well distributed. There were large portions of society left behind, but the social compact was more or less, we'll keep believing in the system because the system is more or less delivering for us. Now it's delivering less for more of us than ever before. In the West, I mean, economic growth has slowed everywhere. And unsurprisingly, there's been a rise in discontent about our leaders. Populist movements abound. Wealth inequality accelerates. A growing awareness of the environmental costs of growth weigh upon us and make us feel helpless. Add into this a revolution of technology that coincided with a worsening of our economic outlook. It's hard to disaggregate cause and effect there. Does being connected to everyone everywhere all at once make us feel bad or just show us, empirically speaking, that things are bad? Martin Wolf does not have a solution, not really, but he has a trenchant analysis and he does put his finger on what the important things are to emphasize at a time when sentiment is something like throw it all out, burn it all down. None of this has ever really worked. Martin Wolf is the chief economics commentator at the Financial Times. His new book is The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Welcome to The Gist. Very pleased to be with you. 
So when I reference putting your finger on what works, the answer is still, as per your analysis, economic growth. Um, I agree with you, but can you tell me at a time when this has been questioned why you're still a believer? Well, there are many ways of thinking about this. One obviously is that there's pretty clear evidence that on the whole, the happiest societies, the freest societies are also the most prosperous societies. They're basically um, the Western democracies. There's an interesting thing called the World Happiness Report that documents this. And it's not incredibly surprising. This is not the same thing as saying that prosperity is is a sufficient condition for happiness. On the whole, the countries that seem happiest seem to be places like New Zealand or Switzerland or Denmark, which are small, fairly homogeneous, um, fairly egalitarian. And it's pretty clear that very big countries, and the US is obviously a very big country, find it most difficult to achieve this contentment, probably because of the extent of diversity, the sheer scale of the place, making feel people feel atomized and small. But leaving that aside, in general, prosperous societies are happier and freer. The, I, I suggest in my book that this is not an accident. They're prosperous because they had um, dynamic market economies over a long period. It took a long time to get here. That created the conditions in which the demands for a public say in um politics grew and were successful. It created the conditions in which people increasingly insisted that they should be treated with dignity and respect. And this, the great value associated with that were spread over time with immense pain and suffering and war, in some cases, to eliminate slavery, to give uh, rights to equal rights to women, then even when it even further, obviously, in the last 30 or 40 years with gay people and so forth. And I think these are all a consequence of living in a prosperous society in which ultimately the individual is entitled to a say in politics, has value, uh, a society in which status is not ascribed by birth. It's a very different one from the pre-capitalist societies. And finally, I think why growth is important, is it makes politics easier. One of the reasons, as you described so well, why politics has become so hard is that if you, in a low-growth society, a low-growth economy, if you try to take, to give something to some people who deserve it, you actually have to make other people worse off. And people don't like being made worse off. It's so much easier if you're sharing out the fruit of growth as was the case 50, 60 years ago. Could we live at our current level of prosperity in a zero growth society? We have no idea. We haven't really tried, but we've been sort of close-ish, quite close to it in the last 15 years. And I would say it hasn't gone very well. Yeah. I'm going to quote to you a few people who question the idea of growth. And this was always, I don't want to I don't want to insult it too much by calling it a fringe idea, but certainly mainstream economists and the people running economies and who we thought were doing well for a while discounted this idea. But these days, Manuel Muniz, who is a Spanish economist and was uh, the equivalent of a kind of a secretary of state in Spain, you know, wrote a book uh, and a treatise that said we can't economically grow our way out of our problems. The American advocacy group Demos 
listed five reasons why prioritizing growth is bad policy. One, growth doesn't work. It doesn't deliver the claimed economic and social benefits. Two is our measure of growth. GDP is flawed. Okay, those kind of are in conflict with with each other. Are you saying that growth, GDP growth, as we uh, consider growth doesn't work? But anyway, they also say overriding the overriding imperative to grow gives overriding power to those, mainly the corporations, which have the capital and technology to deliver the growth. It undermines the case for a long list of pu- public policies that would improve national well-being, but are said to slow growth and hurt the economy. And then I'll quote Greta Thunberg, who declared, "We are in the age. We are uh, we are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you could talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you!" So you, the wizened and wise 76-year-old, please talk to the then 17-year-old Cassandra and tell tell me why she's wrong. Well, there are lots of different things. Um, so personally, I uh, have looked at this literature very carefully, and I think the idea that we are at the beginning of, well, it depends what you mean by a mass extinction. Uh, we are clearly, because, um, because of the the scale of resources human beings are taking themselves is going to lead to the extinction of a lot of species. I don't think there's any real doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's just consider, uh, but that's very different from a sort of complete end of the biosphere, as we know, making the entire world uninhabitable for the great majority of species. I think we can deal with those problems. I hope we can. But let's just separate these things out. We have to be very, very rigorous about what we mean when we say we don't want growth and consider the implications. So the truth is none of our societies actually prioritize growth over everything. You just look at the range of environmental regulations. Um, in, in Britain, for example, I think it's worse than in America because we're a much smaller country. It's almost impossible to build anything. Planning restrictions are so tight because people like to preserve uh, their environment. You can't expand London in any direction because environmental controls are limited. We have a whole range. We have vast spending on health, and health is ultimately all designed in different ways to improve human well-being. The second point is if you're really concerned about the environmental damage we're doing. Let's say take that one, because I think it's an important one. Yes. We're doing immense damage now with our present economy, right? We have 8 billion human beings, and 200 years ago, there were 1.2 billion, right? So that in itself is colossal. And we produce, I don't know exactly what the figure is, probably 40 times as much as we did then. Now, if we stop here, we can guarantee that we're going to go on doing damage if we continue to run our economy as it is. So the logical position of people like Greta Thunberg is to say, essentially, and I've made this point, though it's not a big point in the book, we should go back to 1800. We should just forget the Industrial Revolution. We should forget uh, our motor vehicles and everything. And she should go on to say, and by the way, if we go back to 1800, we can't feed 8 billion people. Right. So about 7 billion of them are surplus. There are far too many people, so we should kill them off. Right. Um, now, none of them actually says, actually, we want to go back to 1800, and we should kill off 7 billion people. And which 7 billion, by the way? And who's going to choose them? This is not a political program. I just have to interrupt you by saying the, uh, the political developments you write about, who's going to choose the 7 billion to kill? There's a lot of people uh, in the world today raising their hands and saying, I'll, I'll do it. 
you pick pick me. Yeah, well, precisely. Yeah. But I get lots of letters from people saying, very rich, obviously rich readers at the AFT saying, the problem is there are far too many uh, people in the world, and what they mean is all the poor people. Yeah. So we should kill off all the Africans. Right. I mean, I'm not. I'm not really joking. I get very, very angry with these things. Somehow they think that somebody else will die. But actually, if we want to save the planet, the people who should die is us. Because we have the big economies, you know, about half the world economy is just run for a billion people out of the eight billion, which is basically the Western world and our allies, Japan, places like that. So we're the ones who should go because we're the massive resource uh, uh, absorbers and users. It's, nobody's volunteering for that. Not that I know. Right, right. And take our and take our technology with us so that all of India is still relegated to using wood burning stoves, for instance. Forever which yeah. is, by the way, very polluting. And the final point, which to me is the killer, the only regimes that could conceivably do this are not are totalitarian regimes that would make Mao Zedong and Stalin and Hitler look, look like butterflies. Uh, because the regimes required to take away from the world the growth the, the the developments of the last two centuries and the people we have as a result would have to be mass murdering on a scale never seen before. So my answer is either there is an economic and technological solution or there is no solution, which is frightening. I think that is really true. And it's why I, you know, we've got to ourselves, this is a really important philosophical and practical point. We've got where we are because of our immense innovative capacity in producing new ways of doing things, technology, science, and all the rest of it. Forgetting all that is not a way we're going to get out of this. The only way we can get out of this, it may be depressing, is better, better applied technology and science. I just don't see any plausible alternative. The rest is just romantic fantasy. We as a species are not so technologically adept that we doomed ourselves that we can't be as technologically adept to save ourselves. It's very unlikely that there is this species on Earth, there is this organism that can only doom themselves through technology and can also save themselves. That is precisely and beautifully put a core argument in my book. The UK's growth prospects are the worst among the top economies. I think the worst in Europe, uh, maybe other than Russia, the Last in class, I heard it described. How much does Brexit serve as an explanation for the laggard status of the UK? Well, my view is that um, since the financial crisis, which affected particularly severely our economy because we were so dependent on the financial sector, you know, New York is part of the American economy, but London dominates the British economy. And London and New York were sort of similar in many ways in the industries they were dominant in. So that was very bad for us. And it revealed real weaknesses. Then we made a very big mistake with what we call austerity. We were particularly severe at the wrong time. And then we made the really catastrophic mistake of destroying the basis of of the development of our economy for half a century, which was integration with our largest and closest market in which London was the commercial capital and we were developing industry to serve that market. Half our trade was with these countries. And, and worse than leave, though that was terrible, we haven't settled the terms. 
So there's so much uncertainty affecting business. There is, they simply don't know what environment they will be in, not merely five, year, one, you know, five years or 10 years hence, but next week often. Uh, and the party responsible is a mess. Now, if you add those things together, we've gone through a period of exceptional policy chaos and exceptional political chaos. I hope and expect that it will get somewhat better, but these are self-inflicted wounds. And if countries do self-inflicted wounds, they suffer. But they do. It does confirm your thesis that it was the it was popularly voted on, though surprising though it was. And it was a populace that was uh, ripe for change, that was maybe susceptible to lies and that didn't hold on to some of the uh, precepts that, you know, delivered prosperity for them and their parents for many decades. Well, the essential point, you've got it beautifully. They lost confidence after the financial crisis and the austerity in the respectable elites, the the experts who told them that we should stay in Europe. Uh, uh, they thought these people were fools. They were obviously fools. And they wanted to hear a different voice. They wanted to hear from somebody else. And it turns out, not surprisingly, it's been the case so many times in the past that the person who came along was a very talented, very English sort of populist. Uh, Boris Johnson went to Eton after all, but then uh, Trump was a millionaire. So uh, so there we are. And, uh, and he presented himself as an outsider. He presented himself as a non-expert, which was certainly true. And they thought, well, Nothing can be worse than what we have, which is a great mistake, usually is. They wanted a, a charismatic leader who told them, I can fix all this. They wanted to believe because they'd lost confidence. And once you'd lost trust in respectable elites, you're going to go for somebody else. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And I think a good rule of thumb for voters, citizens, thinkers is be very suspicious of the idea, it can't get much worse. Or similar ideas like, what have you got to lose? Or how's that working out for you? All of these ideas that I think, especially now with the way uh, technology inserts anxiety into all of our lives, make us as decision makers in a democracy, make us vulnerable to kind of extreme choices. And people don't understand, well, we are living, let's be clear, the US, Western Europe, in the richest, uh, actually, in most ways, most peaceful societies in human history. Many, many faults, but that's the truth. So when people tell me, and I know little history, things can't get worse, I can't help laughing. Uh, you need only think what they were like 100 years ago. Think about what they were like in interwar Europe. I think about what they're like now in the, much the rest of the world. I'm not saying we're going to go there, but of no. course they can get worse. They can get much worse. Right. And from reading the book, I know the context of that, which is your entire family's history shows how much worse it could get. Indeed. Well, I only bring that out to point out that in 1910, when my father was born, no one, and he was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, no one even conceived that somebody like Adolf Hitler could end up ruling Germany. Uh, and now, of course, that was a historical freak. Many mistakes had to happen, but it did happen. Uh, and we should remember that when we look at the great revolutionary upheavals of the last 130, 40 years, 
just how many people died and how much catastrophe occurred. And that's why I come back to the earlier point, that if we're going to deal with the problems of the world that we now see, a revolutionary transformation in which we basically stop everything we're now doing for some completely uh, enormous goal is only going to lead to mass bloodshed and catastrophe. And that's the truth. So we have to struggle with what we have. My hero is FDR. He was of the sort of politician, I'm not saying we'll ever get somebody quite like him, but he is the politician, I think, who saved the world in the middle of the 20th century because he was a populist who knew how to use expertise and knew what he wanted to achieve. And that's the political leadership we, ne we need. I have to say, by the way, though I disagree with lots of policy details, I do very much respect uh, Joe Biden and what he's trying to do as a president. Um, because I think he's the sort of politician, broadly categorized, the sort of politician in this situation that, will, that countries like yours and mine need, because he wants to make things better, and he does understand and feels, I think, what ordinary people feel. He doesn't look or sound like a member of you know, the Oxford-educated elite, and that's great. Martin Wolf is associate editor and chief economics commentator at the Financial Times. He was awarded the commander of the British Empire for his economics writing. The name of his book is The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. And now the spiel, in fact, more specifically an Antoine Tig, our word for a three-week period, wherein I admit to some mistakes, rebut some critiques, and tease major announcements. Tuesday on this show, I will tell you what the major announcement is. So this is once again, a tease of a major announcement, a gist changing announcement will change how you listen to the gist, how you enjoy the gist, the finances of the gist, the finances and possibilities of Peachfish Productions. It's a big one. I will also say that a medium announcement is that Not Even Mad posted its latest and maybe last episode. So if you want to catch up on why you won't be hearing that show anymore, you could go to the feed and, okay, a Smedium announcement. I am doing a Substack. It's Pesca Profundities and a new Substack is up and it's a Substack about Substacks this week. I compare Substacks to podcasting. Please join me there. It'll be free if you want it to be free and there's a chance for it not to be free. So, you, the listeners, wrote in, and one comment I got was from Tom Scolin, Scolin, let us say Scolin. 
it is almost ironic that I mispronounced Scalin, the S in Scalin, because he writes, somebody has to teach Mike how to say Xi Jinping. He's the president of the most populous country on earth. Well, maybe India has been for a decade. That's true. She is pronounced very much like the English female pronoun she. It's really not hard. Mike can do it. Indeed, I can, as evidenced by how I pronounced it. I guess I was saying Xi Jinping, but that wouldn't make sense. Then it would be J-I-J-I-N-P-I-N-G. I think to Tom, I answered him, cheese, or maybe it was she's. It's always so hard to know. Another excellent comment was talking about the spiel I did yesterday where I referenced police shootings in South Bend, and I did make a reference to one-tenth of one percent. I meant to say one-hundredth of one percent, or alternatively, the same, one-tenth of point one percent. What do you think sounds smaller, one-hundredth of one percent or one-tenth of point one percent? And it's, it's very rough, but all the math that flowed from there was correct. That was a misspeak rather than a miscalc. On Reddit, the Reddit page, the uh, Pesca discussion over on Reddit, which is great. I go there a lot. Monster Vet writes, I don't appreciate Mike's lazy interpretation of the criticism of J.K. Rowling. She's gone out of her way to promote and defend some of the most vile voices in transgender hatred using her massive platform, and then she chooses to troll anyone who even attempts to address it with her, characterizing her as the victim of some crazy Twitter mob is disingenuous. Spend more time finding better sources than the Daily Wire. Less time coming up with fun wizard puns. Okay, last part first. No, I will not stint on the wizard or any other type of puns. And so anyone who doesn't care about this particular contratem, rest assured, that is my vow to you, the listener. I'm not spending less time on the wizard puns. Also, I don't read the Daily Wire. I barely ever check in with Ben Shapiro. That's not where I get my trans information or JK Rowling information. I've read every lengthy thing that she's written. I read Eddie Izzard, the uh, English comedian who's been on The Gist, who uh, now identifies as she and her. She writes, I don't think J.K. Rowling is transphobic, and says, I think we need to look at the things she's written about in her blog. If people disagree with me, fine, but why are we going through hell on this? Because it is that issue. Another excellent English transgender piece of journalism or journalism about transgender issues is something from Tortoise Media called The Tavistock about shutting down that clinic. I also listen to Blocked and Reported. I also read whenever Jack Turbin writes something. There are many people, I guess, on both sides of the trans activism question um, where I form my opinions or allow me to form my opinions. But I will say this. If I was doing a spiel on Kanye West, and I was sort of agnostic as to the question, you know, is he really anti-Semitic or were those really anti-Semitic comments? And I made a lot of jokes riffing on lyrics, and I have made jokes about Kanye West. But if you couldn't tell that I really thought the comments were out of bounds, I would understand why you might say, this isn't working for me. I would understand why you might use words like lazy or disingenuous. In this case, I was very much trying not to weigh in on if I thought it was transphobic. That's one of those words that has a capacious definition. I was trying to weigh in on, and I did weigh in on, what the effect of a boycott would be. I was likening it to the NFL, how boycotts work and how they don't. But I do understand that if you really needed or wanted me to say for my credibility that so much of what she said is out of bounds and I didn't say it, it hurts my credibility on the rest of the issue. That's fine. But... I don't think I can weigh in and just come out and call J.K. Rowling 
anti-trans, as many have. And when it comes to artists, it's almost beside the point. There's the question of the artist and the art. There's the question of boycotting a work that's barely related to the art. I mean, Roger Waters hates Israel. The Pixies boycotted Israel. Beck's a Scientologist. I mean, Brett Easton Ellis? Oh my God. So the last thing I will say about J.K. Rowling and Monster Ervert is not going to like this one, but I would highly recommend an upcoming podcast. And we're going to talk to the creators of that podcast. It's called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. We hear from her. Let's see what she has to say. Let's see if Eddie Izzard changes her mind. Let's move on to happier things, softer things, cuddlier things. It is the Lobstar of the Antoine Tig, our award for the best listener, emailer, redditor, interactor and we have an actual physical lobster. He is adorable. He is a bright red lobster, which means he's dead. Don't dwell on that. He's wearing just gear, and henceforth, all lobsters of the Antoine Tig will receive one. His name is Ippolito. Now, normally lobsters are named Larry the Lobster or Lenny the Lobster. Why? This, his name just happens to be Ippolito. If we're being played with by a race higher than us, would we be Harry the human? Harvey the homo sapien? I hope not. I'm Mike the homo sapien. He's Ippolito the lobster. Our sub-lobster of this Antoine Tig is listener Jesse, who writes to me, Hey Mike, you know you're in the Nikki Haley announcement video. What are you talking about? All right, cue the video. They say the promise of freedom is just made up. Some think our ideas are not just wrong, but racist and evil. So here are the visuals. They said the promise of freedom, we see the 1619 Project, is just made up. We see a burning flag. Some think our ideas are not just wrong. That's a picture of AOC. But racist and evil. We see a shot of an MSNBC discussion. There is a black panelist over the Chiron, the 1619 Project. There is a handsome, bald, white journalist next to her. He is looking at her. It is me. I am used for the racist and evil part. I do not know why they chose this clip. Maybe whoever put together the Nikki Haley video thought that that black journalist was Nicole Hannah-Jones. It's not. Maybe they thought I was Matt Taibbi. I look a little Taibish in this. I'm not. But anyway, me and someone else, an MSNBC set on the show Up, which is canceled, we are meant to demonstrate I guess, that we think America is racist and evil. Though if you go by my look, we're not. But And so, Jesse, I thank you. Here's the interesting thing about Jesse alerting me to this, and I think it maybe says something about the legs of the Haley campaign. No one else saw this. It's pretty prominent. If you know me and watched it, you definitely said, that's Pesca. So one person, <laughs> I guess I don't have many people who are going to source material on Nikki Haley for president. But thank you, Jesse. And now we... Give the lobster of the Antoine Tig. I got this in the mail. A letter. Beautiful penmanship. Green felt pen. Dear Mr. Pesca, the very idea of writing you a letter has caused me to guffaw out loud. And yet, here it is. This is International Correspondence Writing Month. And the challenge is to write and deliver a letter a day during the month of February. And she does. Kim Gabriel does. She compliments the show and my methods. And then she says, bottom line, there is a veritable tsunami of punditry and opinion crashing over our heads daily, but you have made it on to my curated list of people to listen to for information and entertainment. I doubt this will make your day, but I hope it does make you feel good. Well, it does. Being a Canadian, I guess as an American, I'm a likely object for International Letter Writing Month. 
But it was the seventh of the month that you sent that letter. So um, at least in the top quarter of people you wanted to reach out to. And as to your question, does it make my day? Not only does it make my day, you, Kim Gabriel, make the exalted list now rewarded with actual physical products of Lobstar of the Antwin Tig. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO and lobster procurer for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, and thanks for listening. Why don't you get a job for Corey? What for? You need money. <laughs> All I need are some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine.